Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcroft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we continue our reflections into uh, these special topics, topics that are tailored to your questions. This evening we are going to take up the question, what is the Catholic interpretation of the end times? Now, this is a question that I certainly responded to within our study on the book Revelation, but as I have already said, if I have talked about it before, yeah, there'll be a place for you to go and to listen and, and so as to better understand whatever topic we are talking about. This Thursday is set to speak specifically to your questions within the context of your question. And so your question, what is the Catholic interpretation of the end times, will be addressed specifically, and it will be addressed with the help of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. We are going to go back into that conversation between he and Peter Sewald, a conversation that was published as a book, Light of the World, the Pope, the Church, and the Signs of the Times. Peter Sewald puts forth a number of questions concerning the end times, the second coming, and I would be remiss if we did not just listen to some of Benedict XVI's words, because they are not only so good, but so clear, and I do think they'll provide for us a deeper understanding of how the Church interprets the end times. So, if you are one who is interested in the Catholic interpretation of the end times, <laughs> this program is for you. Um, if you are someone who already has an understanding of what the Catholic Church says on the end times, this program is for you because, as I've said before, even if we've talked about it before, we are always looking for new insights. We are always asking new questions. So if I've talked about this very topic, just not within the book Revelation, but in other contexts, that doesn't mean that this program is going to be exactly the same. In point of fact, while there'll be some uh, reinforcement from what we talked about before, certainly um, we are going to get into some new aspects. Okay, so the Catholic interpretation of the end times. The term end times applies both to the era of Christ's first coming, okay, and to the events immediately before his return and the end of the ages. So when you talk about the end times, and I say the Catholic interpretation, but let's be honest, this is the biblical interpretation, right? <laughs> because when you look at what I just said, end times applying both to the era of Christ's first coming and to the events immediately before his return and the end of the age. Well, how do we know that? We'll go to sacred scripture. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 11. So we'll be talking about this later in our study on 1 Corinthians. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26, all speak to the era of Christ's first coming. But now go to Matthew chapter 24, 13, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. What do you have? But those events immediately before his return at the end of the ages. You can find the definitive Catholic teaching on the end times 
as contained in the Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraphs 668 to 682. So by way of resource after this program, if you want to go to uh, the Catechism, and if you don't have the Catechism, maybe you want to hop online and read those, what, uh, 15 paragraphs, 668 to 682. And what do we have there, essentially? As the Creed infallibly teaches, the second coming is associated with the end of the world, and what else? The last judgment. In point of fact, when you go to the heading of paragraph 668 to 682, it's titled, From thence he will come again to judge the living and the dead. So, the second coming is about, yes, the end of the world, but also the last judgment. Therefore, it is not associated with any earlier time, such as to establish a millennium. The Catholic Church specifically condemns millenarianism, according to which Jesus will establish a throne in this world and reign for a thousand years. She teaches instead, and this is very important, that Jesus already reigns in eternity, and that in this world his reign, established as a seed, is found already in the church. Well, Joe, what do you do with the thousand years? Well, in the Hebrew, a thousand years speaks to an indefinite period of time, huh? In this case, the time between the first and second coming, the era of the church, in other words, the last days in the broadest sense. The book of Revelation situates this era between the persecution of the Roman Antichrist of the first century and the final unleashing of evil at the end. As for the rapture, the meaning of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 to 17, is that at the return of Christ, verse 15, and the general resurrection of the dead, verse 16, those who survive the persecution of the Antichrist will have no advantage in being resurrected over those who died before his coming. All will go to meet him and be with him forever. Now, the Catechism provides us with a general order of events at the end. And so if you were to turn to paragraphs 673 to 677, you can see chronologically they are first the full number of the Gentiles coming into the church, two, the full inclusion of the Jews in the Messiah's salvation in the wake of the full number of the Gentiles, three, a final trial of the church in the form of a religious deception offering men an apparent solution to their problems at the price of apostasy from the truth. Of course, the supreme deception is that of the Antichrist there. And number four, Christ's victory over this final unleashing of evil through a cosmic upheaval of this passing world and the last judgment. So I think there you have from one to four a chronological understanding of the Catholic's interpretation of the end times. Now, as Benedict XVI has pointed out, as Cardinal Ratzinger, we are not at the end of the world. In fact, the second coming, understood as the physical return of Jesus Christ, cannot occur until the full number of the Gentiles are converted, followed by all Israel. All Israel. Now, approved Catholic mystics throw considerable light on this order, 
by prophesying a minor apostasy and, and tribulation toward the end of the world, after which will occur the reunion of Christians. Only later, as we read the mystics, do we come to understand that the entire world will fall away from Christ, the great apostasy, and the personal Antichrist arise, and the tribulation of the end occur. Now, although mystics are not Catholic doctrine, but arising from private revelation, it does conform to what is occurring in our time, especially in the light of Our Lady of Fatima's promise of an era of peace. Now, other interpretations are possible, but none seem quite simply to fit the facts as well, especially when approved mystics are studied. Okay, so there you have, again, a general outline of the Catholic's interpretation of the end times. What I want to do now is turn to this interview with Peter Seawall that I spoke to in the outset and just go to some of his questions and how Benedict XVI responded to some of these questions. So here's the first question. All of Jesus's prophecies have come to pass except one that is yet to be fulfilled, the prophecy of his second coming. Its fulfillment will finally make the word redemption fully true. You have coined the term eschatological realism. What exactly does that mean? So here's Benedict's response. It means that these things are not a kind of fictitious utopia, but they correspond exactly to reality. In fact, we always have to keep present in our minds the fact that he tells us with the greatest certainty, I will come again. This statement comes before everything else. How about that from Benedict XVI? The statement, I will come again, comes before everything else. Why would Benedict XVI say that? My friends, why do you think you're asking me about the end times? Why do you think the end times is always such a hot topic? Because if the end is near, what does that mean for you and I? But to shape up, right? To get our house in order, to do what we need to do to be right come our final judgment. And so we're always asking that question, when? Benedict XVI continues, this is also why the Mass was originally celebrated facing east toward the returning Lord who is symbolized in the rising sun. Every Mass is therefore an act of going out to meet the one who is coming. In this way, His coming is also anticipated, as it were. We go out to meet him, and he who comes anticipatively already now. What did he just say? Oh, my dear friends, he just said that the Mass is the second coming in anticipated form, right? In point of fact, the Greek word for coming soon is parousia, appearance, invitation, The first Christians interpreted this within the context of the Mass. This is what Benedict XVI was just saying. We have to remember Mark 14, 24, when Jesus Christ said, this is the blood of the New Testament. What is he saying? That the New Testament is the Eucharist. This was the understanding in the first two, three centuries of the church. Only four, five centuries later did we come to understand the New Testament as we understand it today. 
what was it, the Council of Hippo in 395 AD, that we get the canon of the New Testament in its book form. Well, if the New Testament was talked about for the first 400 years of the church, how was it talked about? Well, within the context of the Mass. So the Mass is very important to how we think about the Second Coming, because in so many ways we could say that if Jesus Christ is living within us, then are we not that second coming of Jesus Christ in a sense? Okay. Are we not called to bring Jesus Christ again to the people? Something Benedict XVI would want us to think about and essentially the church as a whole. All right. He goes on. I like to compare this with the account of the wedding at Cana. That is the already but not yet nature of the mass. The first thing the Lord says to Mary there is, my hour has not yet come. But then in spite of that, he gives the new wine, as it were, anticipating his hour, which is yet to come. This, and here's that phrase, eschatological realism, say that three times fast, becomes present in the Eucharist. We go out to meet him as the one who comes. And he comes already now in anticipation of this hour which one day will arrive once and for all. I love the way he put that. This eschatological realism becomes present in the Eucharist. We go out to meet him as the one who comes, and he comes already now in anticipation of this hour, which one day will arrive once and for all. So there you have it. How the Mass is a proverbial second coming. If we understand this as we should, we all go out to meet the Lord who has already been coming all along. We will enter into his coming. And so will ourselves be fitted into a greater reality beyond the everyday, just as we were saying before. Ha, there he says it. <laughs> we are the second coming. All right, let us go to this next question posed by Peter Seewald. I would like to introduce another issue along the same lines. The only prophetic book of the New Testament the secret revelation of St. John, the book of Revelation, which is understood as a proclamation of the good news, is entirely oriented towards Christ's second appearing. Even before that, in Jesus' own time, Jewish scripture scholars, not to mention monks and astronomers, had tried to calculate the date of the Messiah's coming. Meanwhile, the German scholar Halinsky claims to have discovered that the letters to the seven communities at the beginning of the book of Revelation are not about actual places, but contain coded references to the seven successive epochs of church history. But that as it may, the fact is that the world is in graver danger today than in almost any previous period of its history. The situation of the faith is marked by dramatic changes. The sense of belief is withering. Churches are forced to close. An anti-Christian dictatorship of public opinion has shed the mask of subtlety and turned to open aggression instead. I love the way he phrased that. On top of all of this, man has now begun to break the ultimate biblical taboo, the tree of life, the manipulation and production of life itself. Did this state of affairs cause you to remark in Jesus of Nazareth, that is his book on Jesus Christ, that we should apply especially Jesus' sayings about judgment to the present situation? Now listen to what Benedict has to say here. I am skeptical about interpretations like the one you mentioned. The book of Revelation is a mysterious text and has many dimensions. But whether the claims of this particular interpreter are part of that is a question I would leave open. 
In any case, Revelation provides no system for calculating at what point in time things are going to occur. In fact, the striking aspect of Revelation is precisely that it is just when one thinks the end is truly now upon us that the whole thing starts again from the beginning. In other words, Revelation presents us with a mysterious mirror in which we see that tribulations continue, but without also being told exactly when and how an answer will come or when and how the Lord will show himself to us. We are not dealing with a book suited for calculating chronologies. The important thing is that every period open itself to the presence of the Lord, that even we, here and now, stand under the Lord's judgment and that we let ourselves be guided by his judgment. Whereas people had previously spoken only of a twofold coming of Christ, once in Bethlehem and again at the end of time, St. Bernard of Clairvaux spoke of an intermediate coming. That's what we spoke to uh, earlier there, huh? that intermediate period. I believe that Bernard's distinction strikes just the right note. We cannot pin down when the world will end. Christ himself says that no one knows the hour, not even the Son of Man. But we must always stand in the imminence of his coming, as it were. And we must be certain, especially in the midst of tribulations, that he is near. At the same time, when we act, we should be aware that we are under judgment. The most important line there is when he says that we remain open always, anywhere and everywhere to the presence of the Lord. And when tribulations occur, no matter whether or not it is the end of the world or however we might think about it, Christ is near. And again, we know not the day nor the hour. We know not the day nor the hour. This is why we must always be ready. Imagine if Jesus was knocking at your door this evening at 8 p.m. Would you be ready to open the door and invite him into the house? What if it was 7.30 tomorrow morning? What if it was 6 o'clock tomorrow evening? What if it was 8 a.m. a week from now? What is my point? We must always be ready. Because the problem is, if we knew the exact day and the hour, then we would be so fixated on that day and hour, we would cease to live, right? I mean, think about it. If you knew Jesus Christ was coming, say, next week, say, let's see, today's Thursday, next Thursday at four o'clock in the afternoon, what would you do from this moment to that moment? You would have a singular focus on getting ready, and everything else would just go to the margins. But that's not the Christian vocation. The Christian vocation is to live in the present moment and let that present moment be what it needs to be. And if a minute from now our Lord decides to take you, then, well, (laughs) you've done what you've needed to do if you've lived in the present moment. Earlier this week, I was talking about uh, when Paul says, in this moment, and how important that phrase was, in this moment, because in that phrase, in this moment, you have the most important moment there is, the present moment. Not to overuse the word moment, but you catch my drift. If we have a focus, an unhealthy focus on a particular date that essentially takes us away from this call we have to just not live in God, but for other, 
you might say, hey, Joe, if I know that Jesus is coming a week from now, I'm going to spend my next week bringing people to Jesus Christ. Okay, that's fine, but what is your motivation? That he's coming in a week? Shouldn't you have already had the motivation to bring people to Jesus Christ? Shouldn't it just be that everyone will have their final judgment and we need to do everything we can for their salvation and at the same time our salvation? And quite frankly to that, I would say on a human level, if you look back in history, what you find is an unhealthy focus. We, we really don't do a good job of evangelizing. And by that, I mean people who think that Jesus Christ is coming again on a particular day. There's an unhealthy approach to it. All right, one last question here. We do not know when it will be, but we know from the gospel that it will be. As we read in Matthew, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. He will, Matthew continues, divide humanity like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. To the ones on his right, he will say, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But to the others, he will say, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. The unequivocal clarity of Jesus' warnings is further underscored in John's gospel. I have come as light into the world that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And there are many other such statements about judgment as well. Are these sayings meant only symbolically? Benedict's response, of course not. (laughs) A real last judgment takes place here. When you think about it, this judgment is always coming upon man already in, shall we say, a penultimate form in his death. The grand tableau that is painted, especially in Matthew 25, with the sheep and the goats, is a parable for a reality that is unimaginable. After all, we are dealing with an utterly unique event that we cannot picture to ourselves. The fact that the whole cosmos now stands before the Lord, that the whole of history stands before Him. This has to be expressed in images that convey to us an inkling of what is going on. How will all look physically escapes our ability to imagine, but that He is the judge, that a real judgment takes place, that humanity is divided, so that there is also, just as we said, a possibility of damnation, that things are not equally valid, are all very important truths. People nowadays tend to say, why worry? All these bad things won't really happen. God can't really be like that in the end. No, he takes us seriously. And there's the fact that evil continues to exist and must be condemned. In this sense, while being joyfully grateful that God is so good and that he graciously pardons us, we should perceive the seriousness of evil, which we have seen in Nazism and communism, and which we also see all around us today, and we should shape our lives accordingly. So what Benedict XVI is saying there really brings us back to what we were just saying. We have to live with the end in mind. And part of living with the end in mind, my friends, is being present to the battle between good and evil. One of the great tools of Satan is to get us thinking that he doesn't exist. To get us thinking that, well, there is no such thing as sin. But what does John say about that? If we say that there is no sin, we deceive ourselves and death will follow. Now, how do you reconcile evil with good? Well, 
one has to understand that freedom itself is inherent in love. And once you have freedom, you're going to have choices. And once you have choices, you're going to have acts of good and evil. You see, my friends, you can never impose love. That is what I mean when I say freedom is inherent in love. Love never comes from without, but from within. I can never tell you to love me. I can never coerce you to love me. I can never browbeat you to love me. You will never be properly loved because love always comes from within. Love is established first in the heart and it is a response to the one who has first loved us, huh? God himself. Now we sin, we fail, we make bad choices, and yes, there is evil in the world. And so we have to be present to that. What does Peter say? Satan is out there prowling like a roaring lion. Stay sober and alert. We must have that interior sobriety of heart. And if we're going to be intoxicated, let us be intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. Constantly present to what does Benedict XVI say here? The seriousness of evil. Live in joy. Joy is the great exorcism of the devil. But the person who lives in joy is mindful that even the evil act is something that God can overcome and bring about a greater good. And of course, this is what we are taught from the cross. As the cross itself was the most evil act in human history that brought about the greatest good in human history. So the end times, <laughs> the end times, yes, it is a most fascinating question. And as we respond to the question itself, what is the Catholic interpretation of the end times? I want us to appreciate just not how the Catholic Church interprets the end times, but what is the deeper meaning of that interpretation? And especially in light of the Eucharist, I think it is so important what Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI said in response to Peter Sewald that the Mass originally celebrated facing east was toward the returning Lord who is symbolized in the rising sun. So we go out to meet him in the Eucharist. We enter into his second coming. And in so doing, we ourselves become a kind of second coming to the world. Mindful, of course, that as we talked about from the outset, we do have that teaching that there are two dimensions, Christ's first coming and, and Christ's second coming. And within those two dimensions, there is that intermediate time. And that intermediate time is about how we might be a second coming as we enter into his second coming, the Eucharist. All right. With that, uh, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. 
If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.